0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We've got the latest on some mysterious Mac malware that may have been lurking for years. Plus, a handy tool to help you monitor, backup, and just generally work with your DNS infrastructure. And possibly more troubles for Symantec, the certificate authority that just can't seem to get things right. Plus, we've got your fantastic feedback, a jam-packed roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 329, streamed live on July 25th, 2017. This episode is brought to you by our three wonderful sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and ix systems my name is wes and joining me this week is the man with an ever-growing amount of storage that's right it's dan welcome to the show dan hello wonderful to have you as ever thank you how are you doing
1: good excellent i've had a i've had a good weekend uh got lots of stuff done and it's showtime
0: so that means you're in the mood for a packed episode of TechSnap. Mm-hmm. I'm super excited. I think we got a lot of great stuff, some some really interesting feedback, maybe even a, a little bit of a, a deep dive in here. But uh, up first, the, this first story, if I'll let you qualify, but it could be quite concerning.
1: Yes. And the point is, if this is true, it is not very good. If, it, if, if this can happen and Someone starts getting very serious with it, a lot of things will go wrong. Mind you, the main targets have something in place to prevent this, I'm right. sure. But anyway, the title of the article is How I Tricked Semantic with a Fake Private Key. Now, this starts off with lately, some attention was drawn to a widespread problem with TLS certificates. Some people are accidentally publishing their private keys. Sometimes they release as part of the application, and in GitHub repositories or with file names on web servers. So basically, your private keys are are getting published. Why is this a problem? Well, TLS certificates are often referred to also as SSL certificates, and If you're familiar with um, public key encryption, you have a private key that you decrypt with and a public key that you encrypt with. You give the public key away. Well, certificates are very similar to that in that you have a private key that you use to decrypt and sign stuff, and you have a public key that you put out there that everyone sees, and that's your certificate. And that public certificate or the public key actually gets signed by someone who a lot of people trust. That's the certificate authority. And so you put this, the signed certificate on your website, and that's what people use to talk to your website about. And then your private key you also put on the website, but you change the permissions so it can't be accidentally read by somebody else. Generally, your, your certificate key is chmod... Six six hundred. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. So that's uh, root only can read it, and your public key can be six four four, and it doesn't matter who 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 can read and write your who can read your public key. So anyway, back to the story. If the private key is compromised, whether that's for encryption or for a web SSL certificate you're screwed because nothing can be tr- trusted now. Um, if someone gets the private key for your website, they can use that, set up another website, try and do a man-in-the-middle attack or, or, or change your DNS and point you there, and you have no idea that it's somebody else. Now, th- that'll be okay if it's one innocuous website that you're only reading data from, but they could provide you with fake data. We're still, if it's a website that you upload stuff to you could be revealing very personal stuff to them, such as your login for your bank account, for example. Exactly. So, if a private... I'm reading again. If a private key is compromised, a certificate authority is obliged to revoke it. The baseline requirements, a set of rules that browsers and certificate authorities agreed upon, regulate this and say that in such a case, a certificate authority shall revoke the key within 24 hours. Now, a certificate authority is just basically someone that has been vetted and is known to adhere to proper procedures, and uh, they they also have a private key and a public key in that. Private key is very well protected. It's usually set aside somewhere and never actually used. And then they create a second key that someone else signs that the first key is signed as well. And then they use that second key for for issuing stuff. And they resort to the first key if the second key ever gets compromised. So um, what this guy decided to do is he wanted to see if... I just asked someone to revoke a certificate. Would they revoke it if I said, hey, listen, the private key is public, here it is. So what he did is he registered two test domains at a provider that would allow him to hide his identity and not show up on the who, who is information. And th- that, that's, that's easy to do. There's nothing nefarious about having your who is information anonymized on the net. He then ordered test certificates from Symantec via their brand RapidSSL, which I've used, and Komodo, which I've used as well. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I have any certificates still in use by either of them. I think I'm all on Let's Encrypt. That's awesome. These are the biggest certificate authorities, and they both offer short-term test certificates for free. Free SSL, I think, is what Semantic calls it. I then tried to trick them into revoking these certificates with a fake private key. Now, revoking a certificate, what's that mean? That means that <coughs> browsers will no longer trust that certificate. If they're actually checking, oh, I forget the actual word that is used, but there's actual re- revocation list that you're supposed to check from each um, certificate authority. It's supposed to be public somewhere, but basically it stops browsers from trusting that certificate, in theory. I've never actually tried revoking a certificate and then attempting to use it to see if a browser will do that. But if you were to revoke a certificate which belongs to someone who is pretty significant, say, Facebook, Google, something yeah, like that. Yeah,
0: one of the anchors of the web
1: Yep, you can, lit. that's it, at the CRL, Certificate Revocation List. Um, you can literally stop traffic because all these browsers will fail to go there because they'll say, hey, listen, this isn't working. It's not working.
0: Yeah, especially so he, now in like the modern web where we're pushing more and more to start yep. HTTPS everywhere. There's plugins yep. to do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: People are trying to be very careful about getting hoodwinked.
0: Mm-hmm. And rightfully so.
1: There's nothing wrong with it. So, reading again. I created such fake keys for both domains and uploaded them to Pastebin. If you want to create such fake keys on your own, here's a script. I looked at the script. He wrote it in Bash. Write it in Born Shell. To make my report less suspicious, I searched for search pastebin for real compromised private keys belonging to certificates. This again shows how problematic the leakage of private keys is. I easily found seven keys for Komodo certificates and three for semantic certificates, plus several more for other certificate authorities, which I also reported. These additional keys allowed me to make my report to Symantec and Komodo less suspicious. I could hide my fake key report within other legitimate reports about a key compromise. I understand why he did that. And there's nothing wrong with reporting an actual key that's been revealed. There's nothing suspicious about that or nefarious. Okay, so... Right away, Komodo said, nope, no way. There's something wrong with this key. Semantic, however, answered him that they revoked all the certificates. That's it. We're done. Thank you. What's odd about that, including the one with a fake private key, no harm was done here because the certificate was only issued for my own testament. So, So nothing went wrong. But he could have also faked... Used fake private keys for other people's certificates. Very likely, semantic would have revoked them as well, causing downtimes for those sites. I could have easily created a fake key belonging to semantic's own certificate. I wonder what checks and balances I have in there for that. Mm-hmm. So, the communication by semantic with the domain owner. So he's going back to the test domain that that he created was far from ideal. I got a mail saying that they are unable to process my order. I got another email about a cancellation request. They didn't explain what, I, what really happened and the, that the revocation happened due to a key uploaded on Pastebin. I them informed Semantic about the invalid key from my real identity, claiming that I just noted there's something wrong with it. At that point, they should have been aware that they revoked the certificate in error Then I contacted support with my domain owner identity and asked why my certificate was revoked. Okay. He's not explained this very well. And I, I incorrectly said the first part was from his fake identity. Okay. So... Symantec told him, the domain, the, the key, the certificate owner, I wanted to inform you that your free FreeSL certificate was canceled, as during a log check, it was determined that the private key was compromised. So Symantec never told the domain owner that the certificate was revoked due to a key leaked on bin. That's not true. They did tell him, determined that the private key was compromised, which means that, yeah. So Symantec still insisted to the domain owner that the key was compromised even after I'd already informed them that the key was faulty. So from his fake, one way or another, Symantec didn't get this right. They shouldn't have canceled the key based on the fact that the key presented them was not the actual private key. And there are ways to verify that, that, that a key fits the certificate that you have. Right, yeah. <clears throat> His report, though, said that he he checked several different sources on the net. And several of them were wrong for determining whether or not the key actually matched the cert. There are some things that you can do that just said, yeah, yeah, that, that checks. But there's actually a documented security vulnerability in OpenSSL where there's a function called x509 check private key that can be used to check the consistency of a private key with a public key, but it's not actually right. It just checks one part of it. It doesn't actually verify that it's the correct key. Now, later on, he goes in through some procedures that you actually do to verify that it is a a proper private key, but the best way to do it, and this is what you would do with with a... um, with key encryption as well, is you would sign a message with the private key and then verify it with the public key, because that's another feature of private key, public key uh, uh, verification, is not only can you encrypt with the public key and then decrypt it with the private key, you can sign a message with the private key and the public key can be used to verify that you signed that message. So basically that that's the proper way to verify that this key matches that certificate and Symantec should have done something like that, but they didn't. His summary, Symantec did a major blunder by revoking the certificate based on completely forged evidence. There's hardly any excuse for this and it indicates that they operate a certificate authority without a proper understanding of the cryptographic background. Yeah, I'd agree with that, if this is true. I've no reason to believe it isn't, but I wonder if someone else has tried it, and I wonder if Semantic has fixed this, because this is not that old. This is only from Thursday last week, but the guy could have fixed it by now. Sorry, semantic could have fixed it by now. Someone mentioned that the uh, one of them had updated one of their in, uh, instruction pages. Komodo mm. had updated the instruction on how do I verify that a private key mm. matches a mm-hmm. S- uh, certificate open SSL, open SSL certificate. So that they had changed that. But yeah. and then there's stuff in the comments. Uh, some people are agreeing. Oh no, you did this wrong. You should have done it this way, and the feedback should be like this. But. Yeah, in yeah. any
0: case, it's it's interesting and at least a little distressing. <coughs> and I know, like, back in, um, you know, back in March and, and recently, like, Semantic's gotten some flack, especially from people like Google, over misusing certific- certificates or not handling things correctly. Yes. And the whole part of this, like, system is, like, they are, you know, parts of the roots of trust here. They're very, a very important part there. Um, without it, the whole system kind of sort of breaks down.
1: In the comments, the question, does the private key match, is the wrong question. And then it goes on and on and on and says there actually is a way, there is such a method for the TLS ecosystem as part of the ACME protocol. However, I think currently only Let's Encrypt supports it. Now, we've mentioned Let's Encrypt before. Let's Encrypt is aimed at people like you and me, it's, it's aimed at, at people who just have their own little website and they're using it for stuff. It's not aimed at banks, financial institutions, uh, the likes of Facebook and stuff like that. Those are slightly different type of uh, domains in, in the manner in which they're validated. But I would imagine that uh, other domains have a high, I would hope that other domains have a much tighter validation on them before they go and revoke a certificate like this. Um, there's a group that actually, um, that's all they do, is secure domains. And I wonder if they have a similar thing for certificates as well. Um I think if you look at who Google.com is registered for, um, you'll see it's a company, I think, in Utah or um, one of the northern central states. And that's all that this company does. I remember encountering this company years ago, and that's what they specialize in, is securing domains for different organizations. It may not be Google. It may be one of the other big domains. Does Mark Monitor sound similar? Mark Monitor, that's the one. Yep, that's the one. Yep, interesting. That's them. Now, I wonder if if they also look at certificates. I know that they look after domains. I don't know if they look after certificates as well. But um, it was it. I I would be surprised if big companies are not using something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. This is definitely something you know you need to be aware of, and is very important, especially for uh, any size company and uh, you know dominant online giants
1: like if that was to happen to me some people would be inconvenienced but if it was my business and i was making an income off of it and all of a sudden i lost a half day's worth of sales because i get, had to get a new cert that might be a lot of money yeah that could that could be terrible
0: i mean that could have a real negative impact on oh, your business
1: God. huge huge
0: anyway Yikes.
1: Semantic, I
0: hope you fix this. Yeah, we all do, for the sake of the internet. And, uh, you know, viewers, if you care about the sake of the internet, head on over to our first sponsor this evening. That's our friends over at DigitalOcean.com. Making cloud computing, development, system administration easier for all of us. You can get started um, by going to DigitalOcean.com using our promo code, SNAPOcean, one word, lowercase, SNAPOcean. Super easy, and you will be rewarded with $10 credit. Prices start at just $5 a month at DigitalOcean, and for that, you can spin up a VPS in like 55 seconds. They've got all kinds of operating systems, some of our favorites, things like FreeBSD, Ubuntu, CentOS, Container Linux. They've pretty much got everything, and they work... They do great upstream work with these projects, making sure they get the latest releases. Everything works the first time. You're not going to have any problems. You spin it up. It works just like you would in a virtual machine on your desktop. Whether you installed it yourself, you know, on the bare metal, it's all great. And that part of that reason is because DigitalOcean uses real KVM virtualization. That's right. The KVM virtualization you know and trust. And they do it right. You can follow their social media. You'll see a ton of great pictures, videos of their Immaculate data centers. I'm jealous. I wish I had access to those. And they've been rolling out a ton of new features, things like high CPU droplets, object storage is in the works. They have attachable block storage, load balancers, monitoring. It's all there. Pretty much anything you need to build in you know a modern web scale application, DigitalOcean has it. So whether you need to prototype something or scale up to for real production, Dio can do it. They got like 40 terabyte, you know, a gigabit, excuse me, what am I saying? Uh, right to the hypervisor. So it's premium network. You get SSD storage. It has everything and a superb API and an even better community. They hire real editors to take awesome contributions from their community and create some of the best documentation you're going to find online. So whether you need to, you know, figure out how to install and use Jenkins or Spin up a new FreeBSD, drop it, and play with ZFS? It doesn't matter. Dio gets it. They're there, and they've got awesome docs. And in 55 seconds, you'll have it too, especially when you use promo code SNAPOcean. So thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program, and thank you for visiting, checking it out, and making some awesome new projects. Alrighty then, Mr. Dan. What do you have for us next?
1: This is a two year old post, but it seems pertinent because it has to do with DNS. Oh, look at you. And me playing around with DNS lately for let's encrypt, I wanted a way to back it up before I went down the let's encrypt um, we'll call
0: it a rabbit hole, but it's a, it's better
1: than that. It's, I mean, it's like, yeah, lush down I, w- there. I was thinking jungle path or something. Mm-hmm. It's certainly been an adventure. The way I updated my DNS is I went into my repo, my working directory. I Mm -hmm. made my changes. I published to Subversion, and then I updated my web servers from that. No, I didn't use a master. No, I didn't use slaves. I wanted the files to be on disk and my DNS servers to be updated that way. doesn't suit everyone, but it suited me. Mm -hmm. So. After going to dynamic DNS, uh, because that's how I was validating uh, with Let's Encrypt via dns one challenges, mm-hmm. everything is dynamic. So I have no backups.
0: Right. It all just lives there in the in the live server, and that's the record.
1: I've got four four DNS servers plus someone else's yeah. DNS server. That's the only state of my DNS. <laughs> right. If all of those machines disappear, there's no backup offline. There's no offline backups of my DNS at all.
0: That's frightening.
1: So, I mean, it is kind of unlikely that... Mm -hmm. I mean, you have a lot of redundancy built in here, yeah. But So, back to this. Tony Finch has created a gem of a utility called NSNotifyD. It's a teeny-weeny DNS server which sits around and listens for DNS notify messages, which are sent by authority servers when they instruct their slaves that the zone has been updated and they should retransfer. Now, I read that and I was saying, what? They're just sitting there sniffing, waiting for stuff to come by? No, that, that's n- not what happens. You actually incorporate this little DNS server into your DNS infrastructure. So you make sure it's receiving those updates as well. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. So as soon as D receives a notify, it executes a shell script that you provide. I like that it's a shell script. It could probably be any script, but... When you want to be... The script you provide, and he's given a few examples, is passed the name of the notified zone... It's SOA number, that's Statement of Authority, I think, um, and the address of the master authority server, which emitted the notify. So it's those three things you should be able to, to do what you want to do. Now, there are several things that, that he says here. Uh, for example, you could create a backup. You could alert humans or magi- machines that there's been a zone change. You could take uh, snapshots off yeah. our DNS database. You could read the zone and create reverse DNS entries in another zone. Or you could be a bump on the wire DNS signer, DNS sex signer. So I like the author's example here. So because this is what I want to do. So let's assume I wish to keep a Git repository with changes to a few zones. I create a repository, add empty zone files, and create the shell script nsnotifyd will be invoking. And here it is. It's only about 15 to 20 lines. It's very simple. And this is what DNS notify will will invoke. And I look at the code for for DNS notifyd, nsnotifyd, it's not that complicated. But what it invokes is is very simple. Now, all he does in, in this script is he set, sets up the git repository that he wants to commit to. Then it, it, he has passed the argument of the name of the zone that's been updated. He just then um, does a dig to get all the zone transferred down to him, and then he uh, commits those files into the Git repo and it seems very simple, very straightforward. Every time there's a notify that comes out you will take a snapshot of the zone from the master and you've got it right there. I really like this. This is so simple. I'm going to do this. Yeah,
0: no, actually, I'm this positive seems, I'm going to do this. This seems awesome. We uh, we use some PowerDNS uh, at, at my employer. I've used mm-hmm. it myself a little bit so this all of this seems like it would be very
1: handy for any system
0: where you're not where it is like you know purely dynamic.
1: Yeah. Now, full disclosure, Tony Finch, I didn't recognize the name when I started reading this, but as I went further in and started reading reading his stuff, Tony Finch is a FreeBSD developer. Oh, He's nice. also on the project like I am. so I didn't notice notice this at all. Now, basically to launch it, You just run it off. Um, You don't have to run it as a qualified user because it can can bind to a port like 5353 in this example. So you don't have to run this as root. You can run this as you or pick some other non-privileged user and run it as them. And then all all, all you do is you say, basically the minimum thing you can do is say, here's the address you listen to. Here's a port you listen to. Here's a server that you're going to um, uh, listen for incoming stuff from I think that's what the minus is, is we've got the man pages here we'll look that up later and then you say here is the script that you run when you get a notify and that's all it does that's awesome and, that's super and simple then, and it sits there and it listens and then it it seems to have very good logging looking at the examples here and yeah this suits my use case very nicely. Uh, I noticed there's no FreeBSD port for it, so I'm probably going to make a port for it um, just because I don't want to install it without a port. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: that way you know it's nice and easy to get on all the systems yeah. that you have.
1: Yeah. Mind you, I'd only install it on one system, but I know what you mean. It would only right. be on one system, but there's no reason I couldn't install install it on multiple systems. So, if you look at the... Now, the, the there haven't been any changes in the GitHub repo in two years. That doesn't mean anything. It just means it's been very stable. He hasn't had to fix anything. Um, there's very good man pages here. I started reading reading through them earlier. DNS notify D. The minus S is the authority. So, that that is the server. Um, that you use for any zone refresh queries. Um, and then the the command that you run in the zone that you'll run it on, you can specify multiple zones that you're going to listen for. Now, where did that go? The, the zone thing? Yeah, it, it, it's just so incredibly easy. Um, I really like the the way that this is set up because it's just so very straightforward and very small footprint. Um, He's using very standard things for the... uh, uh, There's another tool he has called... Where is it? Oh, Metazones, which is basically the bind configuration in a DS zone. He's used used very standard things that that were designed by uh, Paul Vixie's format numbering scheme. So he's done this all right. He's not sort of hacked together something. But I do like this. Uh, and I'm going to start using it. Maybe not this week. Maybe not next week. But soon. Not tonight. That's for sure. Right. I mean, it t- you know, DNS things.
0: You got it takes time. You got to set it up right. And, but once you get there, I, this
1: yeah it seems super useful. Yep. And, and again, and it, it will do. His use case, originally, I believe I was reading his blog post about oh. it, was he had stealth DNS servers at Cambridge. I think he works at Cambridge University. Mm-hmm. but he has stealth DNS servers. he They encourage departments to run their own DNS server, really uh, that just periodically query the authoritative name server for whatever, uh, the latest SOA is, and then they'll, da- they'll refresh as they need. Hmm. And he thought of this as being a better way of getting newer data, because sometimes it would lag by three or four hours. And he said that, yep, now it works fine, but when a zone update happens, they all feed they all in at once. It. Oh, wow. They all feed in at once. So he said, but that, that's better. So th- that was his use case. Um, but as with many tools, you, you, you create it for your particular use case, but then backups is such a great idea.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's a sign, too, of um, you know, maybe a, a well-built tool in some cases is that it, mm-hmm. sure, it does that, but it, it's flexible enough that you know, people can really easily take it. It's clean, simple. It does kind of yeah. its thing. And then you can you know, have at it.
1: He, there are a lot of options on some of this code. And I'm, I'm surprised, given that it's such a small little package. I'm impressed. Yeah,
0: me too. Awesome. Well, uh, excellent, excellent find.
1: Um, I'm sure our viewers will be excited uh, to try it out. Uh, I can't can't take credit for this. Someone else reported this in. It may have been you. May have been you. No, it wasn't you. I can find out. I'll look it up. <laughs> uh,
0: all right. In any case, hopefully that helps our helps the wonderful audience. And uh, you know, if you take DNS real seriously, this is the sort of tool that you're interested in. Which I mean, obviously, we think maybe you should. You probably take the hardware you run seriously as well. And if that's the case, there's really only one place to go buy your next server, NAS, or, uh, you know, a- appliance of any sort for your next open source solution. That's our friends over at ixsystems.com. The one, the only IX systems. They're like nobody else because nobody else has been doing what they've been doing for so long. They've been here, I mean, through, through, through booms, through busts, through you know Web 1.0, Web 2.0, it doesn't matter. IX has seen it all. They know what they're doing. So go to ixsystems.com/techsnap. There, you will find the definitive guide to buying hardware for open source software. And really, I mean, really, it's it's any any software, but they specialize in open source because they know it. They use it themselves. They participate in the communities, and that's part of what makes them different. Another thing that makes them different is their incredible relationships with some of their upstream vendors, especially people like Intel, with their incredible Intel processors right there. They know how to get the latest and greatest. They have a wonderful working relationship, and they've they've used them all before. So whether you need some you know niche feature, you want to very much make sure that um, you know the motherboard you get, the CPU that's there, that it all works. Then the features you need are enabled. The performance is right. That it'll fit all the expansion cards or slots that you may require. IX has done it. They're experts at it. They know what. They're doing. Maybe you're just looking for, you know, some more storage for your small business, your home office. They've got you covered there too. Storage is one of their specialties. There's they're a regular contributor to the OpenZFS project, and they make the super popular FreeNAS project and some one of our favorites, the FreeNAS Mini. You've probably heard about it. If not, you are missing out. This is like the simplest, best, most robust way to solve your storage problems, I mean, really once and for all. You know, you, you pick it up, you can buy it on Amazon Prime, you can configure it there at IX if you want to, or just call them up. You're gonna regret it if you don't. Just give them a call. You'll find super friendly, super helpful, and super knowledgeable sales engineers ready and waiting for you to, you know, give them a chat, describe your problem, and let them help you work towards together, you know, the right solution. They've got that kind of expertise, so you don't really need to know all about SAS, or if that card is going to fit in that motherboard or this case, you don't have to risk trying to buy a bunch of hardware that you're not quite sure about just to see that it doesn't meet your performance requirements. No, let iX handle that. They are willing to work with you when you have the expertise, and when you don't, they're right there to help and support. Maybe a free NAS, even though it's beautiful, maybe it's not enough. You can also upgrade. You know, they got things like the True NAS, they've got things like the True Rack. You can see by looking at their partners, people like Sony, Disney, Evernote, Symantec, VMware. I mean, huge names with petabytes of storage. So you know that they really are serious. They're some of the the leading people in this community. ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. You will not regret it. Go get a beautiful server today. And thank you to iX for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Ah mr. Dan hello I know uh, you know you're a you're a Mac guy right I am yeah um,
1: I haven't always been yeah oh is that right I for I think my first I, I'm sure that my first PC ran Windows mm-hmm. and I'm sure that I had lot you know I, I remember having Windows XP I still have a Windows XP box here uh, I have... I remember using Windows on a laptop, and I remember using FreeBSD on a laptop. yep. And then when this one laptop died, I said, I'm going to buy a Mac. No more. I'm going to buy a Mac.
0: You know, and then normally, I bet you'd be be feeling pretty secure there, not often a target of many popular viruses, but maybe today's story will change that for you. No, no, no. Pretty secure. (laughs) You certainly look it.
1: So... This article comes out with the title of New Details Emerge on FruitFly Highly Invasive Mac Malware. Six months after it was discovered, the first Mac malware of the year is still causing a stir. The recently discovered FruitFly malware is a stealthy but highly invasive malware from Macs that went undetected for years. The controller of the malware has the ability to remotely take complete control of an infected computer, files, webcam, screen, keyboard, and mouse. But despite its recent discovery, little is known about the malware. Apple released security patches for FruitFly earlier this year, but variants of the malware have since emerged. The core of the malware is an obfuscated Perl script using antiquated code with indicators in the code that suggest the malware may go back almost half a decade or more, the security firm said. Nevertheless, the malware still works well on modern versions of Mac OS, including Yosemite. FruitFly connects and communicates with a command and control server where an attacker can remotely spy on and control an infected Mac. But why it does, but what it does, and why aren't widely known. So what this researcher did instead of trying to reverse engineer the malware quote, he basically created his own command and control server to interact directly with a sample of the malware in his lab. And he oh, says, I, I, this is a common approach. Like we, we've got sandboxes at work. Yeah, right, totally. People, people, you know, malware lab people use this, That's that's all they do. I had to figure out how to create a command and control server that would speak the language of the malware. That let him fully deconstruct what the malware did by simply asking the malware the right questions and giving him an unprecedented view into his capabilities. He found that he could com- take complete control of an infected Mac, including his keyboard and mouse, take screenshots of the display, remotely switch on the webcam and modify files. Now, if I remember correctly, it can take screenshots in different resolutions, so that uh, presumably to decrease bandwidth used when when the screenshot is sent out. So. Oh, yeah. He explained that he could take screenshots of the display of varying quality, a useful feature for, for low bandwidth connections or trying to evade network detection. He noticed the malware is communicating out to primary servers that were offline, but some of the backup servers were available. Armed with his Python-based command and control scripts, he registered some domains and fired up his servers. And that's when his screen began to f- began to fill up with victims' computers connecting to his servers, one after the other. Now, it doesn't really give any indication of how many people this was. And the guy is giving a speech this week and next week uh, in Vegas, so this article is timely. When the malware connects it, you get the IP address, name of the user and the computer name, which is typically the full name of the user. I just logged the connections and parsed the com- computer names then closed the connection. The early analysis was, was that as many as 90% of the victims were in the US with no obvious connection between the users. It was just a general smattering of users. So one of the other things I read here is that basically, he doesn't think it's state-sponsored because it seems so, um, based on the target victims, he's saying it doesn't sound like state-sponsored uh, uh, malware because it was just people. It wasn't companies or anything like that. And it's just the goal to spy on people for perverse reasons. And whoever's using these command and control things, I don't know. He, he, he is working with law enforcement on the matter. Um, But they were, another article said that they were unable to confirm that the FBI was looking at this because they didn't get back to him. And he does say, this is just another illustration that Macs are just as vulnerable as any other computer. Well, yes, maybe. Maybe we're going to get a lot more of this. But maybe there's some of these that have been around for a while, but. We keep hearing about Windows. We don't hear much about Mac. Maybe this is going to change with this one. And the author, the author, the the researcher is set to talk about the more more malware in more detail at Black Hat, which is tomorrow. Um, the second article also says that he's also speaking at um, uh, DEF CON, which is the week after Black Hat. Black Hat is really the the commercial one. Uh, and DefCon is not so commercial. I've been to DefCon once, and um, uh, it was interesting, but I don't have a desire to go back. Um, it was very crowded.
0: Oh yeah, that's what it. That's what it seems to seems to look like. Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I don't think anyone, most people, and maybe there is this perception in less technical Mac users, but at least the people I know that use it would not, you know, would not say that. They don't really get, like, you know, you should still obviously be careful. You may not need to run the same kind of antivirus software that, uh, you know, a Windows user may, but, so it may, I guess it's a good reminder that yes, you are vulnerable, but it seems like a lot of people are, are sh- should already know that.
1: You still don't want to go clicking on links that people no, send you and certainly email. not,
0: no. Or, you know, downloading unknown files or really doing anything that you didn't expect.
1: It'll Stay be off those weird websites.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if uh, you know if they figure out anything more about what the motivation behind this was and just how yeah. how widespread it is.
1: I'd like to see more about this from someone who's done. I would also like to see this obfuscated
0: Perl script. I mean, it sounds gross, but that's pretty funny to me.
1: Um, generally, you obfuscate code by setting all the variables to be funny names. Right, Yeah. And removing all the white space and... Minimizing it and, yeah. You've seen uh, compacted uh, JavaScript code. Yeah, exactly. It's similar to that. You make everything one-line variables.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, some sort of a syntactic uh, transformation that leaves the semantics the same. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's uh, only a little distressing, but hey, Mac users or friends of Mac users, uh, be careful and stay careful. Be careful out there. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, maybe you're a Mac user, and if so, you, you, you might just have one of those iOS devices that everyone's talking about, including here on our program from time to time. If that's true, you should check out techsnap.ting.com. That's right. Our final sponsor this evening is our friends over at Ting, a smarter way to do mobile. And we really mean that. Uh, Ting is different. They've been different, and they have different values. So, you know, they're a reseller. They They have both CDMA and GSM services. And they have a different model. You don't have to prepay. You don't have to sign any sort of crazy two-year contract or promise that you'll never use more than this data or get charged overages. Have to worry about an early termination fee if you aren't happy with your service. No, none of that over at TING. TING is pay for what you use. I know that sounds too crazy, too simple to, 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 be, to make sense, right? We need contracts. We need overly complicated pricing structures that give you more than you need and force you to pay an amount that makes it difficult to understand if you're really actually getting that value. I know, that's what we're used to, but there is salvation. That's right. TextNab.ting.com. That'll get you a $25 credit, which will probably last more than your first month. Yeah, that's right. Go check out the rates page over at Ting, and they make it super simple. Their website is super simple. Their app is super simple. Their app is also, I mean, they kind of pioneered great telco apps because you can do just about anything you might need to do activate deactivate change things it's super great you don't have to call anyone you don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops or wait on hold or any of that if you do call you will find a friendly human waiting for you they've got incredible customer service across the board because that's one of their main tenants they don't have to worry about trying to expand the network or place super cookies on you or worry about trying to become the next big media giant no That's not what they're doing. They're here to be an awesome carrier, and that is what they do. Prices start at just $6 a month, yeah, $6 per line. Easy peasy, super cheap. I mean, I challenge you to find a cheaper per line cost anywhere. Then it's just pay for what you use. So don't use any minutes. You don't pay any money. Don't use any text messages. You don't pay any money. It's that simple. Sure, maybe you use a couple, under $300, $3. Seems pretty reasonable. Then it's your data. Boom! Just check how much you use. Five hundred gigs. Boom. Okay, that's how much you pay. Use a bunch of it. It's just ten dollars per gigabyte, which is you know competitive in the industry. So that's where it makes it really simple. Because when you're around Wi-Fi, you're in the office, you're at home, you don't have to pay. I mean, that's and that's that simple, right? You just use Wi-Fi. You don't have to worry about your cell phone plan. When you need to use it, use it. There's no overages. There's no early. You know, there's no. They're not going to penalize you. They're not going to throttle you. If you want to tether, you can tether. That's included, which makes it super simple, right? You don't have to feel bad. You don't have to try to sneak around. You don't have to be constantly checking. Oh, uh, am I? How, how am I on my cap? No, you just use it if you need it and you'll pay for it. And because, you know, normally there's, you know, I go travel or something. You might use more. That month will be more expensive, but it averages out. And when it's just $6 a line, that's the base rate. If you don't use it at all, you've been on Wi-Fi the whole month. Your bill is going to be $6. I mean, sure, there's some tax and stuff. They can't do anything about that. But even then, it's amazing. So it's a different way. It's a game changer. Go test it out. Go try it out. For $6, what could you lose? TechSnap.ting.com. And thank you very much to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And that brings us to today's feedback. The time in the show where we get to hear from you, our audience. First up, we've got a letter from Morgan. Morgan writes to us about XML and JSON. Hello! I just finished listening to Let's Encrypt is a Snap, episode 328. In it, there was a quick little comment about XML versus JSON. This kind of piqued my interest, and I'm wondering if you could go into a little more detail about this. Perhaps a deep dive into what XML and JSON are, and the benefits of one over the other, as well as any other options that might be available. As always, thank you for the great show. I really do appreciate all the hard work you put into it. Cheers, Morgan. Hey, thank you very much, Morgan. Well, Dan, what do you
1: think? Well, the easy answer is JSON is for transferring data between computers, basically. I would say that's for... Um, um, if you're transferring uh, data, say between the front-end and the back-end, and you want to put it in a data indirect format, uh, independent format, you can put it into JSON. very straightforward, very simple. Now, XML can actually be used as, as a language. It's an extensible markup language, whereas JSON is just uh, a data encoding language, and it's used basically key value pairs to send data between here and there. Um, I actually use XML in freshports.org. An incoming commit message gets translated from plain text into XML, and then that is loaded, used to load up the database. And that's just because there's some very good XML parsing stuff. At the time I was doing this, I don't think JSON was around. JSON was around... uh, I remember reading about this. JSON was not... Very popular at that time, um, and there is no, there is basically no reason for me to even think think of JSON. Someone suggested XML because it was um, a very nice way to put data in a format and then validate it. Um, I actually don't use JSON anywhere. I did use it in a former job. When we would get data from the back end, it would be given to us in JSON format, and then the middle tier would do something with it, then we'd transfer it to the front end in a JSON format. But apart from that, that's the only time I've used JSON. Um, I found a very interesting um, uh, post saying, stop complaining about JSON and XML. And the guy basically just gives a few reasons as, as to why you shouldn't be comparing them. Did I say compare or complain? You said complain, but mean, yeah, compare. Yeah, I meant compare. And um, basically, use the one that best suits what you're doing. I mean, I know that Postgres, for example, has has I think it has both XML and Postgres and JSON support. But basically, use whichever one you think is best suited to what you want to do and... Um, If you're just passing data between two entities, do it in JSON. You don't have to get as complex as XML. Yeah, I think XML is more complex, but that's up to you. There are XML functions in Postgres as well as JSON functions. JSON I see often used in databases for storing multiple values in a single column. So. Instead of normalizing the data, they'll put it into JSON format and put it in there. I'm actually a fan of of normalizing data and putting one value in one column in one row, not not using JSON. There are some valid uses of it, but I'm not a fan of it. I'm I'm sort of a data normalization guy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, Yeah. You know, I was reading some other things about this too. It it does seem you know. XML, yeah, you should use it when it makes sense. And that's probably describing things that, you know, things like these these large nested tree tree structures where you do need attributes and all the additional features that XML has. Um, I think people got so upset about it because it was kind of not necessarily abused because it's obviously very capable of being, um, you know, a serialization format. But it is like it's very verbose. It's hard to understand. And it's not you don't get... You know, JSON. You have these nice data structure literals, so that your objects and your mm-hmm. arrays are really—they're mm-hmm. easy to parse. A machine can parse them. You can parse mm-hmm. them. You can edit them. Mm-hmm. Um, XML does not feel as accessible, and it doesn't look like anything that you're making in your in your program. Um, but if you are making something like you know a document, XHTML web page, things like that, then it it does start to make more sense.
1: There's a DTD, a document de- type definition, which you can use to validate a given XML document. So you make sure you can verify that, yes, the data you have meets this DTD. It's like a, it's a validation thing. And I actually did create one of those for fresh reports. I don't know if it's still up to date, if it still uh, pertains to what we're doing, but the data really hasn't changed that much.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, some things uh, I would also add that I can add to the show notes that most people probably won't won't use necessarily, but you don't have to limit yourself to JSON. There's other formats that are kind of neat. One that's um, pioneered by uh, the Clojure mm-hmm. community. Extensible data notation is what Clojure is written in. Um, it looks a lot like JSON. It's very similar. Let's see if there's some examples. Apparently not in this one. Uh, no, that's not helpful. Let's see. In Sample. So it's it's very similar to JSON, but it has actual um, oh, sample. There we go. Yeah, that's not a very good sample. Uh, but it, it's a richer language than uh, yeah. than JSON is. You can have keys that are that are anything. Um, so that's something to look look for if you if you want something that's a little bit richer than than JSON. Also from the same people, let's see here. Uh, there's a cool project from Cognitect, the people who make and maintain Clojure, called Transit JS, uh, and that's. There's a actually I think it's just called Transit. Transit JS is the JavaScript version, but it's a something that you can lay on top of JSON that has more primitives. Things like first-class dates, things like you know yep. integers, which JavaScript doesn't actually have, um, and it can actually be serialized and deserialized in many places
1: faster than JSON can. That's what I remember JSON being used for. You basically have a data object in a programming structure and you want to serialize it to save it to uh, a file. JSON is, ha- is what it w- was w- w- what that was used for. Um, do, I think, in my opinion, using JSON or XML for configuration files is evil. Do not do it.
0: Do you have a preferred configuration language?
1: Plain text, key value pairs.
0: Like just with a space?
1: Value equals such and such.
0: So like uh, something like an
1: like, like an, an RC.com file. file. Yeah. Like yeah. Like an INI file or an RC.com file. Yeah. Just I'll plain the, text. Um,
0: I'll I'll say also like a system D unit file. But yeah. I've never seen one of those. Well, then you may like it. I don't know. It's it's very similar to that. Um, okay. Well, hopefully that gets people started. Um, I'm sure we'll get some more feedback uh, about this, but it's a good question. And, you know, working with them, seeing some of their applications, I think there's a lot of reasons people have come to find JSON much more palatable for the things that it's good for. Um, and then XML is obviously still used in places that it's needed.
1: And I'm sure that there are people that on um, in both camps that think the other camp is horrible and you shouldn't touch it. Yes, exactly. Um,
0: so it is with software so it is with the world okay yes well then thank you very much for the uh, very interesting question and discussion topic there morgan uh, we are going to move on to the next letter from eugene thanks for dan's recommendations hey wes and dan thanks a lot for the podcast it's great to hear you every week hey it's great to be with you thank you for joining us i also like dan's recommendations lee valley's divider boxes and the duluth fire hose pants please share more such stuff thanks (laughs) oh man this is awesome feedback and kind
1: of hilarious i'm just gonna
0: turn this right over to you because you're the you're the superstar i'd
1: completely forgotten that i recommended the pants but the divider boxes yeah um in in this box i have all my uh hard drive screws So hard drive screws for cages, hard drive screws for, you know, like, um, PC cases, stuff like that, all different sizes and types. And uh, no, that's the wrong box. It's one of these boxes here. It's this one here. And it's very, very useful, Um, basically. All your screws are in one place. You throw a screw in the wrong pile, and you can instantly tell it's in the wrong pile.
0: Nice. And then I
1: grab grab a uh, what's a pincer thing? Uh, it reaches in and grabs like forceps, uh, tweezers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I reach in with tweezers and throw it into the right box. But yeah, um, I bought five this size for nine fifty, and I think you can buy double width ones three for for uh, nine fifty. But they're really good, and I want to know what Morgan. What Morgan was that? Morgan Eugene. Eugene? What Eugene? Morgan was the previous one. I want to know what Eugene is using these for. And then for the fire hose pants, yeah, Duluth Trading online. They have some stores, but they make these really good pants. Um, they they have these great uh, side pockets. Yeah, zoom in on the side side pocket because these they have these pockets where you can put uh, one of the big side pockets you can put your cell phone in and then another one you can put well me I put my reading glasses in you can put your wallet in another one and they had this big wide pocket in behind it so there's two layers of pockets oh, wow. and one cargo pocket so yeah they're cargo pants and I know some people don't like cargo pants but I'm not gonna move away from cargo pants at the moment so I and they uh, make oh go on. they make a long pants version and they make Ooh. a short pants version nice
0: I see here they uh, say they're tougher than an angry beaver. Would you find that to be true? Have
1: you tested it? Uh, yes. They're tougher than any angry beaver I've ever met.
0: Excellent. Hey, wow. Well, that is a ringing endorsement. Awesome. Well, it's good to know. Uh, it's kind of fun to share those, you know, hey, weird little tips, tricks, and uh, nice products that you happen happen to come across. So I'm glad the audience appreciates it as well. Cool. Anything else that you'd like to add for our audience?
1: Um, I'm probably going to buy more of those divider boxes next Uh, time I'm up there. Awesome. Uh, Lee Lee Valley Tools, they're in Ottawa, but they do, uh, um, they seem to have a U.S. um, website.
0: Okay. Perfect, then. So, that makes it easy, then. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dan, for your wonderful suggestions. Keep them coming, and, uh same to you audience thank you very much for the feedback it makes this show a lot better it's a lot of fun to read interact with ask questions and hey it makes us think so that's always good too so keep that coming jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact that's where you can go to contribute feedback of your own that's it for the feedback stay tuned we'll be right back with the roundup and that brings us to the final segment of today's show that's right it's everyone's favorite The Roundup. First up, you got the uh, story of a vulnerability discovered in Windows security protocols. Hey, maybe that's not a surprise, but uh, what's this all about, Dan?
1: Well, two vulnerabilities have been uncovered in Microsoft Windows security protocols, which could lead to password cracking and domain compromise. Uh Uh-oh. These issues are particularly significant as they can lead... They can't, as they can potentially allow an attacker to create new domain administrator accounts. That's a bad thing. Yeah, that's a real bad thing. E- even when best practice controls such as LDAP, server signing, and RDP-restricted admin mode are, an enable, are enabled. So basically, one relates to an unprotected uh, LDAP uh, from an NTLM relay, and the other one relates to was fixed yeah that was fixed and the ntlm was one each time yeah dp restricted admin mode allows users to connect to a remote machine without volunteering their password to the remote machine that might be compromised as a result every attack performed with ntlm such as credential relay and password cracking could be carried out against rdp restricted admin yeah so this—that's the second issue.
0: Yeah. Some of the things i found for this made it seem like it's kind of been a known problem with NTLM for a long time, but has never been fixed, possibly due to uh, the amount of work and changes and refactoring that would have to have to happen for it. And I think even there's a lot of like ISP uh, modems and routers and stuff brought, block that port partially because there's a lot of known issues with it.
1: So they block it on incoming.
0: Yeah. I, or yeah. Going, I think they just yeah generally don't allow it to pass through the router. Yeah. Yeah, I like their line here. According to Preempt, using NTLM at all is very risky. But if companies must use the protocol on their network, they should make LDAP authentication over SSL slash TLS more secure. Yeah, and of course, hey, install these patches. Thankfully, I'm glad yeah. I don't have to administer a Windows network, but they are so common, and especially like, you know, at large enterprises, you're going to have these kinds of... Uh, large networks and becoming a domain administrator there like that's that is a serious breach
1: no no yeah exactly
0: exactly yikes okay well in the same vein like maybe you think that you have been
1: patched but uh and that's probably a good thing not according to the next piece here no the next piece is rather interesting and please do not pay any attention to the article i'm going to read you Just be aware that anyone can publish stuff on the internet. Now, this guy says, with with Patch Tuesday imminent, make sure you have automatic update turned off. You have to patch sooner or later, but there's no reason to directly expose your machine to malformed missives from Microsoft. This is just horrible advice. Yes, sometimes... Patches have done bad things. But more often than not, not patching will expose you to even worse things. Um, the, guy, the guy says, you will need to patch eventually, but you don't need to march to Microsoft tune. Many, dare I say most, advanced Windows users don't let Microsoft's poorly tested patches under the machine until the initial screens of pain have subsided. This is hardly analytical writing. Right. If you're a sa- but if you're a savvy Windows user smart enough to be reading this. dot 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 anyway that's no. There there is a, another guy this came from Matthew Garrett. Um, sorry, that's not the author. Matthew Garrett pointed this post out and he said you are everything wrong with society and I agree. It, it's an absolutely horrible suggestion. Uh, other people said uh, the post is also misogynistic and ageist because, you know, it says, to be sure, your sainted Aunt Martha, the one who's afraid to use Windows for anything but Mahjong, should stay on automatic, automatic Ouch, updates. Yeah. But all of you else, you know, you're smart enough. You can handle this. No, I'm sorry. This is absolutely terrible. It's by Woody on Windows, and it's in Computer World. And I'm sad to say I used to buy this magazine years ago.
0: Yeah, it does just seem like, you know, maybe if you're administering a giant network and it's caused serious breakage in the past, then you have to have a patch a, or a deferred patch schedule or something. But that is not anywhere near what this article is espousing. And the readership is so general here. I mean, it just it, it doesn't make sense. People who have had patch problems and have figured out that they can apply them later... They can already do that, right? If you're a competent system administrator and you have a valid reason, then maybe okay. Uh, there's no reason to start of try to sale, sell that tactic. I, I just don't understand. So we'll move on. Yes. Director evaluation flight test.
1: Yes, this is a bunch of um, stuff from NASA, and it's little um, snippets of information regarding a failure, and what's interesting about this failure and the next failure is how obscure the failure was and the catastrophic potential that these failures had. So this particular failure happened when you were in an aircraft in a climbing rate turn, pulling more than three Gs with some side slip above 10,000 feet. At no other time would this happen. If you're if you vary any one of those four, it won't happen. Wow! All all the ICs, integrated circuits, in an avionics AV box failed. No under no indication of why it failed. They tracked it down only under this set of conditions. A physically unsupported wire carrying a narrow 18 kV pulse moved close enough. To the box's main 12-volt power supply, and the air rarefied enough that an arc over-occurred. So basically, there is like a little spark between the two, and it only happened because it was, rare, you know, air above 10,000 feet. So it didn't leave any burn marks, and the rise time of the pulse was so fast that protection devices didn't have time to work. So this... Wow.
0: That's is why crazy. aircraft cost so much. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly.
1: Ugh. Now, the next thing is amazing as well. It's avionics cooling. So basically, an avionics cooling system consisted of a simple fan and a plenum, which fed air into three flight control boxes. Each box had a metal, metal mesh filter on its input. This system created an air conditioner. The fan was the compressor. The plenum was a condenser and the filters acted as the evaporators. Wow. So this caused the 100% air humidity, 100% humidity air to condense on the backside of the filters with waters running down the backside of the filters. And during a long ground hold, the water continued to condense until the bottoms of the boxes, which is the area under the motherboards, filled with water. So uh, imagine um, there's a box that the avionics are placed in, and it's a self-contained box, and you just plug cables into the outside of the box, and the box is mounted somewhere securely. That that's what you're you're thinking of. When the aircraft rotated on takeoff, the water that had been sitting in the back of the box and the bottom of the box sloshed to the back oh, of the no. box, ah. shorted out everything oh, in wow. all all three flight control boxes <gasps> that's great and that's a, terrifying a fatal accident was nearly avoided wow Th- this is why testing is so important yes
0: holy shit that is so like just the you know if you imagine the giant tree of mm-hmm. possibilities the fa- getting yeah. just there yeah Co- no. that's the thing of complex systems right like it so much can go yeah. wrong
1: the the two that I that we've read out were pointed out to me. I went through about half of them. There's 60 of them sitting here, mm. and they're all very interesting.
0: Awesome. The, this is great homework for the readers. Oh, yes. I'm going to have to, I will probably, you know, maybe a glass of wine later, sit through and I'll, read these. That sounds perfect.
1: I'm going to show it to a couple of aviation people. Yeah, friends.
0: right, exactly. Interesting. <sighs> all right, oh, yeah. moving on. Ah, back to our friend, Mr. Krebs. Here's got an interesting
1: analysis by Bit Defender. He did, he did. Now, um, basically, they think that the people who were running Kaspersky antivirus stuff were not infected by Bit Sorry, by Petya GoldenEye, the the WannaCry sort of variant that came mm, out. Yep. Now they think this under the suspicion that the malware was written by Russians aimed at Ukraine. And what happened is that the software got out of Ukraine somehow and started infecting other people. And anyone running Kaspersky was assumed to be a Russian and not a Ukrainian is is my guess, but yeah. It's just additional information about about this whole virus thing, malware thing that happened. Um, I haven't heard anything about it in the past week. Doesn't mean there's not new stuff. No, it doesn't. But does I just not. have been reading about it. Mm, yeah. So it's interesting to follow up. That's one of those things. You know, a lot of these
0: stories, you don't get the full picture until, you know, several months go by or, or perhaps even longer and people have managed to put, put enough clues together uh, that the story starts
1: to come together. Yeah. I'm anticipating there'll be some really good analysis coming out now that people have had more time to analyze it.
0: And you'll be sure we'll cover it here on the TechSnap program. Yes, we will. Okay, moving on. Ah, now this is a bit of good news. Adobe to pull plug on Flash. Ending an era.
1: This isn't... It's surprising it's lasted so long.
0: It's lasted so long.
1: Adobe has announced that They'll retire at the end of 2020. So that's three and a half years, two and a half years, two and a half years, yes. No, it's three years to the middle of 2020. So it's three and a half years. So after 2020, Adobe will stop releasing updates for Flash and web browsers no longer support it. The companies are encouraging developers to migrate their software under modern programming standards. I really hope it means that we'll stop seeing Flash websites. Flash's popularity began to wane after Apple's decision not to support it on the iPhone. And if I recall correctly, that decision was based on battery life, I think. We we covered this.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I definitely believe that. And it seems like there could have been a lot of possible reasons. Battery life, you know, also, it's a very tightly Security. controlled. Yeah, it's a tightly controlled ecosystem. And, you know, when you re- wrote, the, they wrote, wrote the web browser and the app platform, but Flash is a big glaring binary hole there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm happy to see it go. I mean, uh, Linux support has kind of always been mixed. I'm sure it's worse on yes. on the BSDs, um, or at least the same. And it's just gross. We've come so far with HTML5. I'm excited to see that continue. A lot of the sites that you know are are popular are doing it now, and certainly Flash still has some edges. There are some things that we haven't quite replaced. Just in the unique feature set it had, its ability. You know, it kind of pioneered the the sort of um, modern animated vector graphics video that has become so popular. They were a huge, huge component in that, and it was still very good for it. So I think having this here will actually mean that, you know, places that have been able to put off migrating are now going to be like, okay, well, we've at least got to have it in our, you know, three-year plan or whatever.
1: And we have to keep updating it all the time and installing a new one. Oh wait! You don't have the latest Flash. You can't look at our news. Uh... <sighs> uh,
0: oh yeah! Isn't that isn't that oh, terrible? No. Even if you've been updating your browser, uh, yeah. less so with Chrome these days. But regardless, um, it's it's rough. I'm sure there will be some people that suffer from this. You know, there's a lot of games and such that won't get translated and will no longer work when Flash support is removed from browsers. I can also imagine kind of like Java applets old, you know, firewalls or other, like, random appliances that may have had Flash plugins to enable functionality, that could also be a pain for users. But we got to do it. So it's, it's nice to see Adobe setting a date, even if it feels a long time from now.
1: righty On to our yep. next piece, then. Now, um, Roomba. Roomba does... Vacuum robots, little little circular things, maybe an inch and a half, two inches high, that vacuum your house for you. Make sure you don't have a dog in a shag carpet. Oh, there have been cases of where the dogs pooped on the carpet, and then the Roomba has pushed the poop all around the carpet.
0: Oh, that's
1: that's no good. And has gotten caught up in the. Yeah uh. uh, right. So, but that's not the worst thing about this. The worst thing maybe. ...that Roomba wants to sell maps of your house.
0: Oh, that makes so much sense, unfortunately.
1: What if a company like Amazon, for example, wanted to improve its Echo smart speaker... Roomba's mapping information could certainly help out. Spatial mapping could improve audio performance by taking advantage of the room's acoustic. Do you have a large room that's practically empty? Targeted furniture ads might be quite effective. The laser and camera sensors would paint a nice portrait for lighting needs that would factor into smart lights that adjust in real time. Smart AC units can control better airflow. And additional sensors added in the future would gather even more data from this live double agent live-in double agent, sorry. So, I don't know. No, don't be selling this stuff. The, the reason that, that the Roomba maps out the room is so that it stops bumping into stuff. That's the real reason. Well, that's the alleged reason. And then that map is there and people are worried that this map might get sold. I don't know how sensitive that information is because house plans are generally public information, are they not? Building plans and believe, stuff like that. I, I believe
0: so, or at least can be can be accessed usually. Um, obviously, it yeah. doesn't necessarily you know tell you about arrangements of furniture and such. Furniture things. and stuff. Um, yeah. How much personal information is here is probably something that you know everyone has to decide for themselves. But it is it, it just does show you like that is so much the trend, um, and that information has really, you know, information about consumers in particular has become such a commodity that yeah, even if that was never the original intent, it makes a lot of sense that this is something they would think about potentially monetizing. I'm trying to think about other ways that it would be useful, and I'm not I'm not quite sure, but I'm sure people can can come up with it, and maybe that's okay, like maybe some of it if it's anonymized and aggregated just about general consumer home shape and information. Yeah, I could see that being real helpful to, you know, people like Amazon. What gets creepier, of course, is always when it's, you know, this is this consumer and here's what their house looks like. And uh, there you go.
1: Yeah. Mm. Interesting. This is interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, you know, if you guys have Roombas, I don't have one, uh, but I'd love to hear what you guys thoughts on it. If you have other privacy concerns, things like that. So let us know. Yes. Okay. So we've got one final thing in today's jam packed roundup. And this one, it's kind of a doozy.
1: How the coffee machine took down a factory control room. So this guy is posting from a throwaway account. And I'm going to skip down almost halfway through, his, oh, halfway through his post. Yes, these machines no longer run an up-to-date copy of Windows XP, which is not my choice, but because of local law. We cannot update the monitoring software on those machines because then it's no longer validated by local government. Blah, blah. So... This is, so because of this stupid bureaucracy, we cannot update these computers. And because of that, they're not connected to the internet and also have no accessible USB ports. They are on an internal network that can only reach the PLCs. What are the PLCs? They are mentioned up above the programmable logic controllers. So basically works at a, he's a chemical engineer who works uh, for a plant that makes all these different things and the, the software is monitoring this stuff. So basically, he gets a call and the the tech is saying, everything's down. Um, something hit the local control system, all the computers are down and showing an error. We try to keep them calm and then they figure out what's going on. And he says, it's gonna take a while for this, this to reboot. He says, just shut everything off and get them reinstalled. Make sure that no computers are that are infected or connected to the internal network and just rebuild them, re-image them. He he says, go get a coffee while this is going on. Then he tells me he wasn't able to get coffee because because all the coffee machines were showing the same ransomware attack message. Oh man. Long long story short. The coffee machines are supposed to be connected to their own isolated Wi-Fi network. However, the person installing the coffee machine connected the machine to the internal control room network, and then when he couldn't get internet access, remembered to also connect it to the isolated Wi-Fi network. So it sounds like he connected them to both. The operator contacted us about his monitoring system not working, but forgot to mention the coffee machines were showing the same error the external company responsible for managing our coffee machines got an angrily worded letter and all of their clients were without working coffee for a couple of days ouch that nobody might be worse. was er- nobody was ever in any danger even if all the monitoring systems crash the PLCs will keep running the factory fine this is just monitoring systems not PLC's if any, reason the plc stopped responding there's a plc that is not networked which has only one job and that is to monitor the plcs to make sure they are working and do an emergency stop if they stop working so
0: well that's
1: fascinating
0: and uh
1: makes me wonder why did they put that network plug for an isolated network out there
0: yeah you should turn that off at the switch if you can now um
1: shouldn't be connected to the
0: switch. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it shouldn't be connected at all. Uh, or should be connected to the network that you want it to, you know, actually actually use. I'd also like to know more about these fancy networked coffee machines and uh, what they can do.
1: Uh, we had one at the office, and it got hacked.
0: <laughs> really? Yep. Wow. Did it just and let you be able then, to, like, remotely start coffee and check no, on this it? No,
1: so- this is someone in the office. Oh,
0: me? okay.
1: And um, they were told, stop hacking our coffee machine, do it on another floor.
0: That's amazing, excellent. All right, well, uh, that's a good story to keep in mind. Like, uh, security's hard, and uh, even a tiny networking is harder. Networking is harder. Yeah, exactly. Yikes. All right. Well, I think that's a wonderful note to end on. What about you?
1: Yeah, I was glad I wasn't there. Exactly.
0: I'm glad I have coffee too. So that's you know, we're taken care of. Thankfully. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, that does it for today's episode of TechSnap. It's been episode 329. If you'd like more of this here program, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find our archive, the previous instantiation of the show, and a ton of other great content. There's all kinds of stuff happening to JB these days, so check out the latest user error. That'll be a lot of fun. Or if you haven't yet, checked out the Linux Action News Real easy, short, quick, well edited. I think you'll find it uh, pretty much exactly what you need to stay up to date on the latest in the Linux news world. And, of course, check out my other show, Linux Unplugged. I think there's also a great BSD show. Anyway, it's an awesome network. Go check that out. There is. Plus, you can find our contact page, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. There's a calendar so you can be here live. Or just uh, join the IRC room, watch the live feed. It's, It's a ton of fun. If you miss us before we're back for next week, you can find him at, at @techsnap_dan underscore dan, and I'm at westpain. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next
1: week. Goodbye. Gabe wants me to sing him a song. I'll sing him a song he's never heard of before. Eyes the bye that builds the boat, and eyes the bye that sails her, eyes the bye that catches the fish, and takes her home to lies her.
0: That was beautiful. I think that's the perfect way to end the show. See ya.